0: What happens when you put good people in an evil place? Does humanity win over evil or does evil triumph? A question a psychologist would try to answer. Well hey there, glad you're back. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Not Another Horror Podcast. Now that you're here, I guess we can get started. Now, if you don't know who I am, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti. You might be wondering what case are we going to dive into tonight. Well, it's our first case on human experiments. We're going to explore a case on how terrifying the human mind can be. We're going to explore the case of the Stanford experiments right after this. Hey there. It's your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and I just want to have a quick heart-to-heart with you. Now, you've probably been wanting to start your own podcast, but can't seem to get the ball rolling or you just don't know where to start. And trust me, I get it. There are a lot of options out there. It's almost overload. But today I'm going to tell you about the easiest way, and that is to download the Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to start your own podcast stress free No complicated software or membership fees. It's all free. And they'll even distribute it for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start earning money right now with no minimum listenership. Download the Anchor app to get started today. Now, let's get back to the show. The time, August 17th, 1971. The place... Palo Alto, California It was a beautiful late summer morning in the area but for nine young men things were about to get pretty bad You see on that morning these young men received visits from local police officers While their neighbors looked on the men were arrested for violating penal codes 211 and 459 armed robbery and burglary They were searched, handcuffed, and led into the rear of a waiting police car. The cars took them to a Palo Alto police station where the men were booked, fingerprinted, moved to a holding cell, and blindfolded. Finally, they were transported to the Stanford County Prison, also known as the Stanford University Psychology Department. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here because I haven't given you the why of the story. Well, let's back up a little bit and start from the beginning. Let me introduce to you psychologist Philip Zimbardo. Zimbardo was born in 1933 and grew up in the South Bronx in New York City. Zimbardo writes that living in an impoverished neighborhood as a child influenced his interest in psychology. He is quoted saying, My interest in understanding the dynamics of human aggression and violence stems from my early personal experiences of living in a rough, violent neighborhood. Zimbardo credits his teachers with helping to encourage his interest in school and motivating him to become successful. After graduating from high school, he attended Brooklyn College, where he graduated in 1954, with a triple major in psychology, anthropology, and sociology. He studied psychology in graduate school at Yale, where he earned his M.A. in 1955, and his Ph.D., in 1959 after graduating Zimbardo taught at Yale New York University and Columbia before moving to Stanford in 1968 his position at Stanford is where he would conduct an experiment that is still talked about today referred to as the Stanford prison experiment you see the Stanford prison experiment would go on to be his most famous and controversial study. In this experiment, Zimbardo and his colleagues were interested in finding out whether the brutality reported among guards in American prisons was due to the sadistic personalities of the guard, i.e. dispositional, or had more to do with the prison environment, i.e. situational. For example, prisoner and guards may have personalities which make conflict inevitable, with prisoners lacking respect for law and order and guards being domineering and aggressive. Zimbardo would put out a newspaper ad to gain participants for this experiment. In this ad, he asked for volunteers who wanted to participate in a study of psychological effects for prison life. He also offered $15 an hour, which is the equivalent to $96 an hour today for 14 days straight. You can see the appeal. He would receive 75 applicants. The 75 applicants who answered the ad were giving diagnostic interviews and personality tests to eliminate candidates with psychological problems Medical disabilities are a history of crime or drug abuse. Participants were randomly assigned to either the role of prisoner or guard in the simulated prison. They chose these people with the flip of a coin. Participants were randomly assigned to either the role of prisoner or guard in the simulated prison environment with the flip of a coin. There were two reserves and one dropped out, finally leaving 10 prisoners and 11 guards. Each cell in this mock prison held three prisoners and included three cots. Other rooms across from the cells were utilized for the jail guards and warden. One tiny space was designated as a solitary confinement room, and yet another room served as a prison yard. Prisoners were to remain in the mock prison 24 hours a day during the study. Guards were assigned to work in three-man teams for eight-hour shifts. After each shift, guards were allowed to return to their homes until their next shift. Researchers were able to observe the behavior of the prisoners and guards using hidden cameras and microphones. When the prisoners arrived at the prison, They were stripped naked, deloused, had all their personal possessions removed and locked away, and were given prison clothes and bedding. They were issued a uniform and referred to by their numbers only. You see, the use of ID numbers was a way to make prisoners feel anonymous, and remove them from their identity. Each prisoner had to be called only by his ID number and could only refer to himself and the other prisoners by number. Their clothes comprised of dresses with a patch with their number written on it, but no underclothes. They also had a tight nylon cap to cover their hair and a locked chain around one ankle. All guards were dressed in identical uniforms of khaki, and they carried a whistle around their neck, including a nightstick borrowed from the police. Guards also wore special sunglasses, and this was to make eye contact with prisoners impossible. Three guards worked shifts of eight hours each. The other guards remained on call. Guards were instructed to do whatever they thought was necessary to maintain law, in order. One of the biggest jobs they had was to command the respect of the prisoners by any means necessary. No physical violence was permitted. Yeah, you probably see where this is going right now, don't you? Things would start off quite smoothly. You see, in the first few hours, the guys were joking around and not taking the experiment seriously but that would change later that night. Within a very short time, both guards and prisoners were becoming their new roles, with the guards adopting theirs quickly and easily. Within hours of beginning the experiment, some guards began to harass prisoners at 2.30 a.m. Prisoners were awakened from their sleep by blasting whistles for the first of many counts. The Count served as a way to familiarize the prisoners with their numbers. More importantly, they provided a regular occasion for the guards to exercise control over the prisoners. Pretty soon, Prisoner number 8612 would be the first prisoner to be rebellious. You see, Prisoner 8612 did not like how the guards were treating them. So, this would lead to a confrontation between the guards and prisoners. One of the guards would strike the prisoner with a knife stick and throw him in solitary confinement, breaking the whole no violence rule. Can't say I didn't see that one coming. After this, the prisoners would start developing prisoner like behavior. They talked about prison issues a great deal of the time. They told tales on each other to the guards. They started taking the prison rules very seriously, as though they were there for the prisoners' benefit. An infringement would spell disaster for all of them. Some even began siding with the guards against prisoners who did not obey the rules. It wouldn't take long for physical punishment to start making an appearance, as seeing there was no repercussions for the first incident. The prisoners were taunted with insults and petty orders. They were given pointless and boring tasks to accomplish, and they were generally dehumanized. Push-ups were a common form of physical punishment imposed by the guards. One of the guards stepped on the prisoners' backs while they did push-ups, or made the other prisoners sit on the back of fellow prisoners doing their push-ups. Because the prisoners seemed submissive now, the guards were surprised and totally unprepared for the rebellion which broke out on the morning of the second day. During the second day of the experiment, the prisoners removed their stocking caps, ripped off their numbers, and barricaded themselves inside the cells by putting their beds against the door. The guards called in reinforcements. The three guards who were waiting on standby duty came in and night shift guards voluntarily remained on duty. The guards retaliated by using a fire extinguisher which shot a stream of skin-chilling carbon dioxide, and they forced the prisoners away from the doors. Next, the guards broke into each cell, stripped the prisoners naked, and took the beds out. The ringleader of the prison rebellion were placed into solitary confinement. After this, the guards generally began to harass and intimidate the prisoners even more. One of the three cells was designated as a privileged cell. The three prisoners least involved in the rebellion were given special privileges. The guards gave them back their uniforms and beds and allow them to wash their hair and brush their teeth. Privileged prisoners also got to eat special food in the presence of the other prisoners, who had temporarily lost the privilege of eating. The effect was to break the solidarity among prisoners. The consequences of the rebellious made matters worse. Over the next few days, the relationship between the guards and the prisoners changed. With change in one leading to a change in the other, remember that the guards were firmly in control and the prisoners were totally dependent on them. As the prisoners became more dependent, the guards became more hateful towards them. They held the prisoners in contempt and let the prisoners know it. As the guards' contempt for them grew, the prisoners became more Submissive. As the prisoners became more submissive, the guards became more aggressive and assertive. They demanded ever greater obedience from the prisoners. The prisoners were dependent on the guards for everything, so they tried to find ways to please the guards, such as telling lies on fellow prisoners. Less than 36 hours into this experiment, Prisoner 8612 began suffering from acute emotional disturbance, disorganized thinking, uncontrollable crying, and rage. He was yelling to be let out. He even threatened to kill himself. After a meeting with the guards where they told him he was weak but offered him informant status, a612 returned to the other prisoners and said, You can't leave. You can't quit. Soon, A612 began to act crazy, to scream, to curse, to go into a rage that seemed out of control. It wasn't until this point that the psychologists realized they had to let him out. The next day, the guards held a visiting hour for parents and friends. They were worried that when the parents saw the state of the jail, they might insist on taking their sons home. Guards washed the prisoners, had them clean and polish their cells, fed them a big dinner and played music on the intercom. By all accounts, everything seemed normal. But the parents had no idea of the cruelty their children were being subjected to. After the visit, rumors spread of a mass escape plan afraid that they would lose the prisoners the guards and experimenters tried to enlist the help and facilities of the palo alto police department the guards again escalated the level of harassment forcing them to do meaningless tasks repetitive work such as cleaning toilets with their bare hands on the fifth day they would bring in a catholic priest eventually while talking to the priest 819 broke down and began to cry hysterically just like two previously released prisoners had the psychologist removed the chain from his foot the cap off his head and told him to go and rest in a room that was adjacent to the prison yard they told him they would get him some food and then take him to see a doctor while this was going on one of the guards lined up the other prisoners and had them chant aloud prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner they repeated this over and over and over the psychologist realized 819 could hear the chanting and went back into the room where they found him sobbing uncontrollably the psychologist tried to get him to agree to leave the experiment but he said he could not leave because the others had labeled him as a bad prisoner. Things would really come to a bowl that night when the guards would force the men to perform sexual acts on each other for their amusement. You see, they thought this would be a way of emasculating them, which would make them even more submissive. Zimbardo had intended that the experiment should run for two weeks, but on the sixth day it was terminated due to the emotional breakdowns of prisoners and excessive aggression of the guards. Christina Masalak, a recent Stanford PhD, bought in to conduct interviews with the guards and prisoners strongly objected when she saw the prisoners being abused by the guards. Filled with outrage, she said, it's terrible what you are doing to these boys. Out of 50 or more outsiders who have seen our prison, she was the only one who ever questioned its morality. Now, you're probably wondering what the subjects had to say after the experiment was over. When asked to explain their behavior, some of the guards, only a couple whom self-identified as naturally assertive, simply said that authority felt fun. The more dependent the prisoners grew, the more the guards resented them. The prisoners became objects to revile, rather than persons in need of rehabilitation. One guard after the fact said that he was shocked at what he became capable of when placed in a position where he has to act a part. Out of all the potential explanations for the behavior of the participants, two terms stand out in this. De-individuation and learned helplessness. See, de-individuation is defined as the loss of self in lieu of group norms, especially in the case of highly stereotyped roles like the tough but fair law enforcement officer. These can account for the guards believing that they were just doing their jobs. Learned helplessness can help explain why the prisoners eventually gave up. Their efforts to resist produced no meaningful impact. You're probably now wondering, was this ethical? Well. Yes and no. You see, at the start it was, but on day two, the contracts had already technically been thrown out the window. But they stayed anyways because they believed they were indeed prisoners and assumed only the guards had the authority to release them. Sometimes the human mind is scarier than anything else. The most disturbing thing to me is how readily people will act abusively towards others. The element of deindividuation made me think of the Holocaust, although obviously on a much different scale. It's easier to dehumanize a number than a person. The Attica prison riot in New York State happened in this same year, and it makes me wonder how much the same elements that were observed in the Stanford experiment came into play in the guards' treatment of prisoners. Leading up to the deadly Attica riot. Speaking of human experiments, I have a special guest reading for you guys before we go. My friend Zach is going to narrate a story for you. The story is called Gateway of the Mind.
1: In 1983, a team of deeply pious scientists conducted a radical experiment in an undisclosed facility. The scientists had theorized that a human, without access to any senses or ways to perceive stimuli, would be able to perceive the presence of God. They believed that the five senses clouded an awareness of eternity, and without them, a human could actually establish contact with God by thought. An elderly man who claimed to have nothing left to live for was the only test subject to volunteer. To purge him of all of his senses, the scientist performed a complex operation in which every sensory nerve connection to the brain was surgically severed. Although the test subject retained full muscular function, he could not see, hear, taste, smell, or feel. With no possible way to communicate with, or even sense, the outside world, he was alone with his own thoughts. Scientists monitored him as he spoke aloud about his state of mind in jumbled, slurred sentences that he couldn't even hear. After four days, the man claimed to be hearing hushed, unintelligible voices in his head. Assuming it was an onset of psychosis, the scientists paid little attention to the man's concerns. Two days later, the man cried that he could hear his dead wife speaking with him, and even more, he could communicate back. The scientists were intrigued, but were not convinced until the subject started naming dead relatives of the scientist. He repeated personal information to the scientist that only their dead spouses and parents would have known. At this point, a sizable portion of the scientists departed the study. After a week of conversing with the deceased through his thoughts, the subject became distressed, saying the voices were overwhelming. In every waking moment, his consciousness was bombarded by hundreds of voices that refused to leave him alone. He frequently threw himself against the wall trying to elicit a pain response. He begged the scientist for sedatives so he could escape the voices by sleeping. This tactic worked for three days, until he started having severe night terrors. The subject repeatedly said that he could see and hear the deceased in his dreams. Only a day later, the subject began to scream and claw at his non functional eyes, hoping to sense something in the physical world. The hysterical subject now said the voices of the dead were deafening and hostile, speaking of hell and the end of the world. At one point, he yelled, No heaven, no forgiveness, for five hours straight. He continually begged to be killed, but the scientists were convinced that he was close to establishing contact with God. After another day, the subject could no longer form coherent sentences. Seemingly mad, he started to bite off chunks of flesh from his arm. The scientist rushed into the test chamber and restrained him to a table so he could not kill himself. After a few hours of being tied down, the subject halted his struggling and screaming. He stared blankly at the ceiling as teardrops silently streaked across his face. Unable to intake nutrients or hydration, the subject had to be manually fed intravenously. Eventually, he turned his head and, despite his blindness, made focused eye contact with one of the scientists for the first time since the beginning of the study. He whispered, I have spoken with God, and he has abandoned us. And his vital signs stopped. There was no apparent cause of death.
0: That was terrifying. That story was called Gateway of the Mind by Zach. If you want to hear Zach narrate some more stories, maybe we'll get him back on the show. Well, that's all I have for you guys tonight. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. It really helps the show grow. And if you want to hear more human experiment stories, I'm working on a whole Cold War series. It will only be available on our Patreon page, so stay tuned for that. As always, stay safe, stay sane, and be careful what you volunteer for.